Well, last week, wisdom was gained, and this morning, wisdom's first test. Our scripture reading this morning will be found in Genesis 3. And once you found Genesis 3, you can also turn to 1 Kings 3. Genesis 3 and 1 Kings chapter 3. Genesis 3, starting at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, Just a quick little footnote here, that wisdom and the knowledge of good and evil are linked even in the beginning of creation. So seeing that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of the, which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So far, the reading of God's Word. Human nature desires justice. It's part of our nature from the time we were born, and we can even see it as our children play. That's not fair. I had it first. That toy is mine, yet they did not ask to to play with it. We see this sense of justice in adults as well. 
I can think of no other person I would rather be less than a referee during hockey playoffs. Talk about the desire for fairness and justice. Well, such a strong inborn sense of justice then, when we hear of cases that are unable to be resolved, it troubles our soul. This built-in sense of justice is the reason when a final verdict of innocence or guilt is left hanging, it tends to gnaw on our minds. If only there were some piece of evidence to prove innocence or guilt. Such was the sad case years back when an innocent young child was accidentally killed. There were only two other individuals who were co-workers present at the time in question. Yet when the investigators were trying to get to the bottom of what happened, both stories of the individuals contradicted each other. While both agreed that the passing was an accident, both accused each other of the death. To add to the dilemma, there were no video cameras. There was no witnesses and no other evidence for which to rely on. When the case was finally brought to the court, the two co-workers only pointed at each other. And justice would have to wait if it ever came at all. Let's pray. Lord, as we have just sung, we ask that you would speak, O oh Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth that we hear this morning and plant it deep in us. Shape us and fashion us in your likeness. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, we learned that Solomon loved the Lord and walked in the statutes of his father, David. And shortly after offering a great many sacrifices, God appears to Solomon in a dream and asks him this question. Ask what I shall give to you. Of all that Solomon could have asked for, he asks for a hearing heart to understand good and evil that he may judge the people of God. The Lord is pleased to answer this request, saying, Behold, I give you a wise and understanding heart. And we learn that wisdom and the discernment of good and evil walk together. You can't be wise without discernment. And you can't be discerning without wisdom. Last week, we also noted that our world does not care for judgment for a handful of reasons. For starter, if there's no such thing as truth, if there's no such thing as good or evil, then for some to judge between good and evil gets very unsettling for them. Then there's the rush to judgments and hypocrisy. Maybe it would be better to not judge at all. So many ways for judgments to go wrong. Yet wise discernment delivers justice, holiness, purity, and peace. 
And before we move on to wisdom's first test, it should be noted that wisdom is so much more than discerning obvious offenses. Wisdom, when it becomes mature, is useful for reading the signs of the times. Our culture and the spirit of the age. Wisdom, when it is finely tuned, allows us to discern attitudes, responses, and the reactions of those around us. Jesus discerned according to responses quite regularly. When one of the ten lepers who was healed returned to give thanks and praise God with a loud voice, Jesus was delighted with this response, saying, rise and go your way. Your faith has saved you. Or when the Canaanite woman asking for her possessed daughter who was not a Jew to be healed, listen to the judgment of Jesus. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. And doesn't your heart just burn within you when you hear this passage? What a beautiful judgment Jesus makes. What a kind and just discernment of her spirit. Or when Jesus meets the Gentile centurion pleading for his servant to be healed. When Jesus heard the response of the centurion, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Here we have wonderful judgments of healing and salvation being repeatedly made through the scripture solely on the basis of responses even if those responses consist of little more than the washing of feet and tears. And as wisdom is observing, it is, its outpouring is so much more than a punitive response. When we hear the word judge, we can often wince as we hear the gavel coming down guilty and the following rejection and punishment. Yes, sometimes to judge will mean punishment, but more often than not, the scriptures show that discernment is a part of our daily conduct. Proverbs 7 says, say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend. Why? To keep you from the forbidden woman from the adulteress with her smooth words. A judgment is made on this woman, but not to punish her, but to avoid the inevitable consequences of adultery. Or again, young men, judge your friends well and avoid those who rush to evil. Proverbs 1 says, if they say, come with us and let us lie and wait for blood, 
Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Judge them carefully. To punish them? No. But to save your own life. For these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Sometimes a wise judgment is to apply good medicine. First Thessalonians makes it clear that some in the Thessalonican church have been judged to be idle, faint-hearted, or weak. Yet look at the recommended action. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all of them. Do you see what I'm saying here? To, to, to judge can certainly sound punitive, but more often than not, it is a wise observation of the world around us to take appropriate action. We are getting closer to wisdom's first test. However, there is one more bit of training we must do first. For James says that wisdom must be asked for. Proverbs says that wisdom must be searched for, and Hebrews says that discernment must be trained. Human behaviors and responses can be difficult, so praise the Lord. He has given us the gift of his word to discern the spirits, the attitudes, and the responses of our world around us to act accordingly. For this training, look to Genesis chapter 3, which we just read. In Genesis chapter 3, the Lord has given us a template of sorts, a roadmap, or a standard operating procedure of those who are troubled before the Lord. If we follow Adam and Eve's behavior, we're given a playbook that is common to man, and as the Lord sees responses, we see them too. In this account, we are given four guilt responses that are sure to be followed as a train follows its tracks. Adam and Eve have sinned. They have taken and eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and immediately guilt overwhelms them. Look to verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And the first thing that guilt drove Adam and Eve to do was to attempt to fix their own guilt with man-made methods. They tried making fig leaf clothing instead of repenting before the Lord. If the guilty won't turn to the Lord and make things right, they will try any other solution no matter how outlandish. The troubled will try simple methods, foolish methods, worldly methods, as just about anything other than God's way will have an appeal to it. Dr. Morris put it like this, so often people coming to counseling or crying out to the Lord do so deceitfully as they already know the direction they want to go in and are only looking to be affirmed. 
And when given biblical counsel, the response is often that God's way just won't work for their situation. And any other godless method will be acceptable to those harboring guilt. And you and I can be alert for this type of response. The second thing a guilty conscience did was to direct Adam and Eve to run from God. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Proverbs says the guilty flee when no one is chasing them. And guilt is uncomfortable around holiness. It becomes suspicious and paranoid, driving itself between a wedge between God and, and other believers. And Dr. J. Adams would, would, would state this, that the very place where the Holy Spirit can connect with our spirit, the very place where, where God's word is spoken, where there is communion, where there is fellowship with other believers, it's all cast aside. The very thing that would cure our guilt and restore our soul are all avoided as guilt drives us to isolation and separation from God and his people. The third response of Adam and Eve was to make excuses when God called them out. Verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Adam has a reason, an excuse why they can't be in the presence of God. Not because they had sinned, but because they were naked. And this is an ironic and pathetic excuse because there had never been a point where they were not naked. Nothing had changed but their own guilt. You need to come back to church. You need to surround yourself with other believers. But for the guilty, this is too much. And they begin to make excuses as to why they can't. Then, after excuses for the withdrawal, the final response is to blame. Verse 12, the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. Finally, after Adam is cornered, he blames his wife, and ultimately God. God was a first-hand witness to Adam and Eve's response and judged them accordingly. And now these responses are written down for wisdom's observation. For those who are troubled before the Lord, their playbook looks like this. Worldly solutions, no matter how foolish or sinful. Avoiding God and his people. Making excuses for avoiding God and his people. And then blaming God and his people. And we will need to keep them in mind as we come to our narrative. We'll see that it's all full of all kinds of fascinating attitudes and responses. Let's see what happens. The story I relayed earlier of the two co-workers and the death of a child is a true story. There was no evidence, no witnesses, and no cameras to take to, take to court and when it was taken before the judge, the workers only blamed each other. 
look to 1 Kings 3, verse 16 for the details. Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. Then one woman said, Oh my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this, floor, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she rose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. The first said, no, the dead child is yours and the living one is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. This plight has come to Solomon within a very short time of his meeting with the Lord. Very little time has passed and we are presented with wisdom's first test. A baby is accidentally killed and we have a she said, she said dilemma. How can anyone ever know the truth? In cases like this, they they bother us. With our built-in sense of justice, there's a strong desire to just know. But how? Unless someone confesses or a missing piece of strong evidence is found, justice will be a hopeless cause. Or will it? Look to verse 23. Then the king said, the one says, this is my son that is alive and your son is dead. And the other says, but your son is dead and my son is the living one. And the king said, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. And the king said, divide the child in two and give half to one and give half to the other. What a worldly and evil solution. Really, Solomon? Divide the baby? (laughs) That's not God's way. It's a totally over-the-top man-made method and a murderous one at that. But Solomon is laying a trap. In the wisdom of the Lord, Solomon is going to make a judgment based solely on responses. And this is a test that the innocent cannot fail and a test that the guilty cannot pass. Let's check the response of the first woman in verse 26. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, O Lord, give her the living child. And by no means put him to death. Innocence will strive for the truth no matter what the cost. For the first woman, the response will mean that even if the baby is not divided by the sword, she will still lose her baby. 
This is remarkable. The insistence of innocence will come at great cost. But to the one who knows the truth, there is simply no other road. Do you see that? What other option does truth have? But there is another phenomenon at work here in this trap that Solomon has set. We get another response in, verse, in the second half of, of verse 26. Oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. But the other said, he shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. What kind of response is this? Have you ever wondered that? Who in their right mind would seriously say that? Surely she could see what Solomon was setting up, what he was up to, and come up with a better reply. Surely maybe she could have put on an act. Oh, please, no. But upon further reflection, we can't outsmart our own guilt. Our conscience knows our condemnation, and this is the trap that Solomon is setting. For the guilty, just about any worldly solution apart from God's word or his people will be acceptable. For those whose fight for the truth is half-hearted, their responses instinctively return to textbook Adam and Eve responses, attempting to fix sin with worldly solutions, avoiding God and his people, excuses for why they're avoiding God and his people, and then turning on God and his people. And the second woman could not even get past step one. This half-hearted decision to go ahead with a worldly and murderous solution and divide the baby was perfectly acceptable because in her heart she knew she was a fraud. We have the responses from the two women. The next response will be from Solomon. How will Solomon respond? Great wisdom is needed here. Remember Solomon's prayer? Oh Lord, I don't perceive. Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad, for who is able to judge this thy so great a people? Solomon, with no evidence, no cameras, no fingerprints, no witnesses, and no confessions, makes a judgment, and a binding judgment at that. Verse 27. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is the mother. What a gift do we have in the Holy Spirit to understand God's word, to understand good and evil, to unravel the mystery of human responses and to discern well. And not only was justice given, but it was given to the weak and perhaps the lowest in society. 
It wasn't only justice to the rich or the influential, but justice to a prostitute and justice to a baby to have its rightful mother. Maybe to judge and to judge well isn't so bad after all. Yet we are not quite done. We have one more response to examine. Look at our final response in verse 28 before we close. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered. We have one more response, and that is from the nation of Israel. For they too will make a judgment, not on the two women, but on Solomon, the one who has judged. This is actually common in life. How many of us, when we heard the verdict come down from the courts, at some point haven't either rejoiced or groaned? Just a few weeks ago, a young police officer was killed by a man who with serious previous charges should have already been in prison, yet was released by the court. And we instinctively rendered our own judgment on the unjust judge. And Proverbs says, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. And although we might like, dislike the term, we are judging all the time. Even those who declare that they don't judge, they judge. Those who proclaim that judging is despicable have themselves just made a despicable judgment. And the solution is not for you and I to stop our judgments altogether, as this is impossible for our human nature. But what is possible for those of us empowered by the Holy Spirit is to ensure that our judgments are wise and just. Just as all Israel will now judge Solomon, how will you judge those who are calling on Adam and Eve to be restored? How will you judge church leaders or our brothers and sisters in the Lord as they work some very difficult situations? In the past, we have seen the guilty responses of Adam and Eve here at People's Church, which have been widely evident if you care to judge well. You may have seen firsthand or trust with a strong level of certainty that those with poor responses were guided to respond well. Maybe it was to read a book. Maybe it was to go to a Christian counselor or take ownership of their sin, or make things right, or meet with a pastor or an elder, yet all willfully rejected. In fairness, perhaps you were too removed from the situation to know how others were admonishing or exhorting, which is entirely possible. And even so, there are more obvious and troubling behaviors. It will be evident as they are detaching themselves from the gathering of believers. And then when engaged or encouraged to return, watch for the excuses defending their isolation. Then as those around us encourage Adam and Eve to take right action, 
Be attentive and observant for a potential menacing turn. Be alert, for as holiness presses in on them, there is the real possibility that they will respond by turning on those working with them or blaming the church. And discernment can make us uncomfortable when we can be tempted to remain blind as judgment might lead to conflict. And we might instead attempt to remain neutral with statements like, we shouldn't judge, or I don't want to get involved. Can I tell you what typically happens even with well-meaning people who say this? Being totally unwilling to make a judgment or get involved regarding the obvious sinful responses of Adam and Eve, they are the first in line to judge those involved in trying to point Adam to Christ. Then, as Adam and Eve inevitably announce that they are leaving people's church, we refuse to judge the poor attitudes and responses, but instead judge those who are working the situation. What did you say to Adam and Eve exactly? What was your process? You should have been more kind and loving. You should have reached out more. Can't you just apologize to Adam? Can I encourage you not to miss the forest for the trees? That as the Lord sees the attitudes and responses of men, we too can observe. And should Adam and Eve attempt to counterattack our church or blame those involved in pointing them to God's way, we don't have to second guess ourselves. But we can stand firm. And should these Adam-like accusations reach your ear, I'll give you a reply that will greatly help if you desire to be a just judge. And if you have a pen and paper, I strongly recommend you write this down. This line will cut through the fog. Or you can come find me afterwards. It's going to be so helpful for you. That should Adam and Eve come to you with all the injustices and failures of those helping them, your response is a simple answer, and it goes like this. Adam and Eve, the process may have been less than perfect by those speaking into you, but how are you called to Christ-likeness? They may react, well, they didn't listen enough. They didn't reach out enough. Yes, I, I understand and I hear you. And those involved with you, perhaps they could have reached out more and listened more. But how were they encouraging you towards righteousness? How were you invited to respond well before the Lord? Should you ask this, there will be yet one more response that should be a red flag for wisdom to see. When asked how they were called to Christ-likeness, more often than not, their response will simply be, I don't know. I don't know? After all the energy and visits and time invested to them and they still don't know how they're being pointed to Christ, 
It is as Isaiah says, it is they who are dull of hearing. It is they who hear but do not understand. It is they who have a hearing heart, who do not have a hearing heart to understand the good and evil in their own heart. And be so careful that as we insist on not judging or not getting involved, that we end up judging the wise instead of the fool. That we mistakenly judge God instead of Adam or Solomon instead of the woman. To Israel's credit, they knew the wisdom of the Lord when they saw it. Look to verse 28. And all Israel heard the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? To judge can certainly sound punitive, but more often than not, it is a wise observation of the world around us to take the appropriate action. And what a gift we have in God's word to understand good and evil, to unravel the mystery of human responses and to discern well. James will say, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. For to judge according to the wisdom of God and enact justice is love. To turn someone from their sin and point them to righteousness is always loving. Let's pray. Lord, as we just read, your, your word says that if any of us lacks wisdom, Lord, that we can ask you and that you give generously to all without reproach. And Lord, in the times we live in, in the spirit of our age, Lord, we, we need your wisdom. And so Lord, I pray that we'd have confidence in your word and we thank you for your word that it gives us your holy standard. And that Lord, to guide people in the path of righteousness is always after your own heart. Lord, we pray that you would seal your word to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.